Afternoon. Brought to you by Glenmore Audi. Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Leading by 11, gets the shotgun snap, rolls back, winds up, long arching pass, down the near sideline, zeroes on the clock, the benches, the benches will empty. And this one is over. Kansas City has won their first Super Bowl in 50 years. 50 years, a lifetime. And they do it in come from behind fashion. Beating San Francisco 31 to 20 in Super Bowl 54. So you go from 2010, midway through the fourth of the quarter, fourth quarter rather, blink of an eye, and it's 31-21. And it really isn't overstating it that much to say you blinked and you missed it. From Patrick Mahomes not being good enough under the bright lights and maybe not being prepared for all of the spotlight that comes along with the Super Bowl to being Super Bowl MVP. That was an outstanding football game, entertaining. And Kleiner, it's like we either get a thriller or an absolute dud in this game. And yesterday, we got an absolute thriller. That was a lot of fun. I thoroughly enjoyed it from start to finish. It was competitive and hard fought from start to finish. I don't know how many people thought the Chiefs were going to erase a 10-point deficit midway through the fourth quarter, but they did, and they did it in rather emphatic fashion with 21 unanswered points. I think we're going to be talking about Super Bowl 54 for quite a while. We're going to be talking about Patrick Mahomes' fourth quarter for quite a while. That was pretty cool to see. Yeah, it was, and I think we are also going to be talking about the fourth quarter of Jimmy Garoppolo, Kyle Shanahan, and the rest of the San Francisco 49ers. There are a number of different talking points coming out of this one, and you can do the, the classic sports radio, well, did they win it or did they lose it? We'll talk next. But th- there are compelling arguments, I think, to be made. More on, like this, uh, did they win it or did they lose it? More next. KNBR San Francisco. <laughs> something like um, that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, something along those lines. And there are arguments to be made for both. But at well, the end of the day. What's your answer? Uh, my answer would be more that the Chiefs won it. I, I do think that San Francisco played a little scared at times, and there was a lot of playing too to... conservatives? Yeah, playing... Conservative playing conser- <laughs> Two conservatives? <laughs> we'll leave that one alone. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think that there was a lot of playing to not lose instead of playing to win, and against the Kansas City team that we saw through back-to-back games in the postseason can put a point to the blink of an eye. You can't be content just going from 7 to 10 points. You can't be content punting the ball or things of that nature. So I I think it was more Kansas City winning it, but I think there were certainly some decisions that helped them out along the way made by San Francisco. Yeah, it was and, – and I don't think you're ever going to have a scenario when it's only one way, but I yeah. mean I, I think that – I think that if you're the if you're the Chiefs, you can come away saying that was that wasn't given to us. That was they they fought through that, and you know there were that that drive and, and a couple of those conversions to get them back within. Uh, I guess it would have got them back within three on the Travis Kelsey touchdown. As soon as Kelsey scored that touchdown, you kind of had the feeling that. This is going to be interesting. Yeah. And you could tell that Mahomes was starting to feel it. And when that guy starts to feel it, it gets terrifying. So that's that's really what this ended up being. Is that 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 drive which a couple of times it could have gone south and it might not have happened for them. That drive turned the football game. And I think all of a sudden because I didn't mind the game plan 
of San Fran being up by two scores and, and playing it a little bit more conservative. I didn't mind it. I understood it. But it's it's as if they got visibly back on the on their back foot as soon as Kelsey scored that touchdown, as soon as Kansas City converted that drive. And it went from 0 to 100. And the the Niners had no answer for the Chiefs from that point forward. And And you're right. It looked like they were playing scared from that point forward. Yeah, and it seemed like Jimmy Garoppolo was a little overwhelmed by the moment uh, a touch. I thought that, especially in that fourth quarter, unless you were wide open and his first read, he wasn't throwing you the ball. And as soon as he had to work through his progressions and maybe make a difficult throw, there was a bit of panic that set in, and Kansas City was able to take advantage. And then the offense, they just started rolling. And I thought that... Early in the game, Kansas City, it was kind of playing out the way that I thought it would, where the San Francisco pass rush was having a huge effect on the game, and Kansas City was really calling their plays based on the effectiveness of that pass rush, and then Mahomes started to get into a bit of a groove, and he was starting to move a little bit more, and that's when the Kansas City offense started to get rolling. So it took them three and a half quarters to really get into a zone, but when they did, there's no one better in football, and we saw that again on Sunday. Well, and there were a couple of times where Mahomes hulked up and, and had to shake off that pressure single-handedly. Like, in that fourth quarter, there must have been two, three different times where he shrugged off what looked like could have been a sack. And, and you know, Patrick Mahomes had to do it on his own because that San Fran pass rush was as furious as it was basically all game long. Let's, uh, you, you heard the... Westwood One radio call. That was Kevin Harlan with the call coming in. Uh, you heard the game live right here on Sportsnet 960 The Fan, but it's been 50 years in Kansas City, one of the most passionate, rabid groups of fans in the NFL. It's been a long time coming if you're a Chiefs fan. For many, the first time they've ever witnessed a Chiefs Super Bowl win. Here's how it sounded on Kansas City radio last night. Kansas City 31, San Francisco 20. Mahomes takes the snap. He's just going to throw it long for Demarcus Robinson. It is going to use up all the time. The game is over, and the Chiefs' kingdom has firmly planted its flag on top of football's highest summit. The Kansas City Chiefs are champions of Super Bowl 54. Final score, Kansas City 31, San Francisco 20. And Chiefs Kingdom, get ready to welcome your champions. I don't want to call it Kansas City anymore. I think we got to say it from that. Can you can you say it the way he said it, please? Kansas City. It's like Kansas City. Kansas City with the win. I like it. Yeah. Um, what what does this do? And, and this is one of the big storylines for me coming into this game. What does this do for Patrick Mahomes? So that was his 36th NFL start yesterday, uh, his fifth playoff start. Uh, He got one start in 2017 when we didn't really know who he was. It was a Week 17 start, and we're like, okay, there's the guy from Texas Tech taking it home for Alex Smith. Did all right, but it was a garbage game. It meant nothing, so he didn't really know what to expect. But then he starts all 16 in 2018 and becomes the story of the NFL and follows it up even with an injury this year, follows it up by still being one of the most exciting players in the NFL. And I know that he doesn't end up winning the MVP and Lamar Jackson's season deserved uh, the MVP nod. But in year two, he follows up his incredible 2018 by winning a Super Bowl in the 2019 season. If, If... 
We don't know what's next for Tom Brady. We don't know if Brady will be wearing red, white, and blue in Boston, black and silver in Oakland, or whatever colors they wear in L.A. We don't know what what's next for Tom Brady. But if yesterday wasn't the, and this season wasn't the passing of the torch of the the greatest to the next one i don't know what is like this this looks like the beginning of patrick mahomes's legacy and patrick mahomes cementing himself as the next best in the nfl and here he is winning a super bowl in year two as an nfl starter i i just i am fascinated as to what this means for his legacy and where this guy's legacy goes from here yeah, and I I agree. I think he, for the last couple years, has been the best quarterback in the league. I, I remember saying when the, the Madden ratings came in, came out and he was number one already. It was okay. Let's let's make this guy have to do it twice before we say he's the best in the league. Well, now we can say he's the best in the league. He can make all the throws. He's mobile. He's kind of the perfect mix of being able to run, but not just being a running quarterback, if that makes sense. Like, if you have to force him into being a pocket passer, he's more than capable of doing that. I I thought he showed a couple butterflies early on in that game, especially that first drive. There were a couple throws that he just flat-out missed, but after that, he was back to being Patrick Mahomes and uh, a very, very solid outing for him, and now you're starting to see that new wave of quarterback. We, we've had the old guard for a while with Brady and Breeze and Roethlisberger and Rivers, and there's a bit of a, a bridge there with Russell Wilson, and, I mean, basically that's it. Um, and now you have the younger quarterbacks with guys like Mahomes and Lamar Jackson. And, I mean, we saw Josh Allen have a good first half of playoff football anyway. There are a few young, exciting... Kyler Murray's another one, and a couple more in this draft to come as well. This is a pretty fun, exciting time for quarterbacks in the NFL, and it's a lot different than what we're used to. And from a Kansas City perspective, they still got Mahomes on his rookie contract for the next two years, so they can still have a pretty good juggernaut before they have to worry about paying Mahomes what I'm going to assume will be the most lucrative contract a quarterback's ever made. Was Did you have any question prior to yesterday whether or not he was the best? Oh, no. None whatsoever. No, he is. I, I think from a talent perspective. I didn't either, by the is, way. Yeah. From a talent perspective, he is the most talented quarterback in the NFL, just from what I said. He can, he can do a little bit of everything, and he's, he has elite-level arm, and he can run among some of the best mobile quarterbacks in the league it's it's a pretty scary dynamic to have for sure welcome to pinder and steinberg welcome to a monday edition of the program live from opa aviation we are back here uh this is the first the first location we did one of our opa live shows with uh, opa aviation it is easy to find if you are on mcknight boulevard it's in the huge aviation complex the address 465 aviation road northeast come join us here at opa aviation we're hanging out once again with Kidsport for the citywide 50 50 draw props to uh Props to Aaron, our uh, promotions guy, who uh, sold a ton of tickets at Shanks Crowfoot yesterday, by oh, the wow. way. But Kevin from Kids Sport is here, and uh, you can come on down, get yourself a calamari and Caesar salad, get yourself a wrap, get yourself one of the uh, one of the bowls, have lunch here at OPA, buy yourself a 50-50 ticket, help us help Kids Sport as we try to get 
this draw as high as we possibly can and help Kidsport meet that $6 million commitment they need for 2020. We're here until 6 o'clock. Somebody texted in. This is my um, one of my favorite texts of the week, and it's only Monday. Come on, Steinberg. Quit hiding behind football. Let's hear what you have to say about Saturday night. Homer. I saw that and had okay. to turn my mic off. I was laughing. That's hilarious. <sighs> Human <laughs> beings, man. Human beings. Um, We just did an hour of hockey. I think we could maybe do 10 minutes on the Super Bowl. I think we're probably allowed to do that. It's not like you're quote-unquote This is not not week two of the preseason. We're not talking about a bunch of Jets fourth stringers going up against the Cleveland Browns. I think we're allowed to talk about the Super Bowl. But, yes, it is time to talk about Saturday night. We'll start that off by looking back on Saturday's game in a minute. Game in a Minute, brought to you by Hyatt Infinity. Warm up with these hot deals. Save up to $15,000 on a cash purchase of the 2019 QX80 and save up to $12,000 on a cash purchase of the 2019 Q60. Good evening, hockey fans, and welcome inside Scotiabank Saddledome in Calgary for round four of this season's Battle of Alberta between Mark Giordano and the 27-19-6 Calgary Flames and Connor McDavid and the 27-18-6 Edmonton Oilers. Archibald finds it, centers it, Cassian scores! What a start for the visiting Oilers. Middle ahead to Robinson. Robinson returns the puck to Gaudreau, gets it back to Robinson. Robinson scores! Buddy Robinson gets his first goal as a flame. It is two to one. David will pick it up and skate in and shoot, and he scores. Well, David Riddick will want that one back, and that will be the end of his night. Connor McDavid scores his second goal of this Battle of Alberta, and it's four to one Oilers. And now Talbot and Smith are going to go right at center ice. A goalie fight in this Battle of Alberta. Smith and Talbot exchanging right. Smith, some good rights to the head of Talbot. And now he takes him down. A line brawl here at Scotiabank Saddledome. And if you were wondering if the battle is back in the Battle of Alberta, wonder no more. One on one with David Riddick. Comes in wide right. Cuts to the middle, Haas shoots and scores. In a game that literally has had everything, Gaetan Haas scores on a penalty shot, and they lead the Flames 8-3 in this Battle of Alberta. I think it's just time to send these two teams to the shower, and that's exactly what they're going to do. They They wind down the clock here at Scotiabank Saddledome. Well, it wasn't as close a contest as we hoped that it would be but it was a battle this battle of Alberta between Calgary and Edmonton tonight the orders got off to a great start never trailed here at Scotiabank Saddledome this evening they score eight the Flames only get three so 11 goals a line brawl and a goalie fight later Edmonton finally beats Calgary in this season's battle of Alberta the final score the orders eight and the Flames three Your game in a minute from Saturday night, and I think head coach Jeff Ward summed it up pretty well. I mean, everybody saw the same thing. They were good, and we weren't, you know, so 
Um, what can we control? That's how we prepare to play again. You know, lessons we take out of this, we got to be way more competitive. You know, I thought some of our guys were. I thought as a team, overall, we, we could have been more competitive. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so we've got four games. So, yeah. There you yeah. Go. We've got four games in the book so far in this year's Battle of Alberta. We've had two lopsided ones. The first one, the Oilers were junk and the Flames were really good. The fourth one, vice versa, the Oilers were really good and the Flames were junk. And we've had two really close affairs that could have gone either way. That's been the four-game series to this point. One more game still to come on April 4th, game 82 for both teams. But from a Flames perspective on Saturday night, one of their worst performances of the season, no doubt about it. You know, you take a look at some of those L.A. games were pretty bad. A couple of those Vegas games were really bad. But considering the site of the game, the Scotiabank Saddledome, considering the opponent, the Edmonton Oilers, and considering what had happened in the last two games between these two teams to take a pounding in the teeth like the Flames did on Saturday, that's going to be tough to swallow. Uh, sure did seem like it was tough to swallow at practice today, Klein. That was one of the more spirited practices I can remember. There were a ton of battle drills. Jeff Ward, the head coach, was fired up. That's that's one of those games where if you're the Flames, you say that was pretty embarrassing, and it was pretty embarrassing. That was a really poor effort, and the Oilers were fired up and ready to go. That is an Oilers team that knew they had not beaten the Flames yet this season, knew how heated the rivalry was on their side. They were not happy about how the game ended Wednesday with David Riddick's stick flip and all that type of stuff. There was a lot that went into it, but when it's all said and done, the Flames no-showed against their arch-rival on home ice and took it in the teeth, and that is not sitting well with uh, with this group right now. Nor should it. Like That was an embarrassing performance on Saturday, and you could see right from the word go, they were slow and lethargic, and Edmonton was all over them. It looked like just the, the reverse of the first game where 11 seconds in, the Flames are all over them on the forecheck. There's a Ryan Nugent-Hopkins turnover and a goal. And right from there, it's off to the races for the Flames. And you could see right from the start, Edmonton was just better than the Flames. And we've talked about inconsistent effort from this team for a while. And they've been able to squeak out a couple wins when not playing at their best. But this was, okay, if you're going to do this against good teams, and for all the back and forth we've done, I'm fine calling the Oilers a good team, they're going to stomp you sometimes. And the Flames deserved every bit of that result that happened on Saturday night. Yep. And and look, it's one game, it's two points, it's it's not the end of the world. I understand that, but you also understand and you know what you also hope that that doesn't go over very well and you hope that that is going to leave a very sour taste in this team's mouth that was that was a really pitiful performance and Mm -hmm. you know it 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 gave us all of the fireworks we were hoping for more on those in a second but you hope that the flames come out of that game with the same type of feel like this this is rock bottom we can't let this happen again we can't be unprepared again in uh, an emotional big spot like that because if the other team is then something like what we saw on saturday can very easily happen so there is good news klein this rivalry is back these two teams despise one another i 
can't remember three games against the same team the Flames have been in where things have boiled over like they did in all three of them. They boiled over on January 11th. It was heated in Edmonton on January 29th. And then they gave us what we were looking for. And more importantly, they gave you what you were looking for, (laughs) Mr. Klein. They gave us the goalie fight. And uh, we got Mike Smith v. Cam Talbot at center ice. And uh, that, that place was electric on Saturday night when when even though it was 6-3 at the time and the Flames had just played one of their worst periods if not their worst period of the season when that started to go down it was electric at the Scotiabank Saddledome you had Talbot lose his cool in his crease you had him going after Gagne then chase on then you had Darnell Nurse basically say did you did, have you seen the picture of Nurse pointing at yes. right saying Smith is down there yeah Nurse Talbot is Okay. Now. <laughs> Nurses, yeah. as opposed to Kachuk, who yes. ruined your goalie fight. Exactly. <laughs> Nurse facilitated it. <laughs> and then Talbot sees Smith. Uh, Smith had already undone his equipment. He was just waiting. And next thing you know, bam, here we go. It was a quick one, but punches were thrown in a goalie fight. Yeah. And we, it was, uh, Kleiner, have you ever seen me stand up in the press box? Uh, I have not. Nope. Uh, I did there. As soon oh, as that good. happened, I, I stood up and I was leaned right over just because I was like, I can't believe that we're seeing this. Yeah. Uh, it was unbelievable. It was, uh, the, the fireworks were ridiculous and the building was on fire. It was awesome. There, there was a part of me that was upset that I wasn't watching, that I wasn't at the dome working the game. But then when all that happened, I, I, I kind of flipped on that because had I been working that game, I would have already been down by the locker room getting ready for a second intermission walk-off, and I would have missed all of that, and it would have absolutely broken my heart. And quite frankly, I don't know if I ever would have forgave you for it. Uh, so I'm, I'm, happy, I'm happy I wasn't there in a sense so I was able to see it. But I, I wasn't actually watching the game live. I was recording it so I could watch it later. And then our group chat just erupts with, Goalie fight! Goalie fight! It's a goalie fight! And I like I jumped over the table, grabbed the remote, put it on. Okay, what am I missing? And it was more one goalie punching the other. But I got what I wanted. I can't uh, beggars can't be choosers. It was a goalie fight, and I was so happy. Oh, it was beautiful. Yep. It was uh, it was pretty cool. And I mean, it was happening all the while while Ethan Bear and Matthew Kachuk were locked up in a fight. That was Ethan Bear's first NHL fight, and he went toe to toe with Kachuk and. And, and you know, that was the crescendo. There wasn't a whole lot in the third period. I think both teams were just like, okay, let's not have anybody get hurt. No more ejections. The others are going to win this game. Let's just end it and end it as um, uh, relatively <laughs> harmlessly as we can. Uh, they played out the string in the final 20. The Oilers scored a couple more times. Um, but when it was all said and done, yeah, it's uh, – it's an 8-3 win for the Oilers over the Flames. But, boy, was that a lot of fun. Uh, look it. I said it going into the game on January 29th. I don't care if this is a dud. I don't care if this doesn't live up to the hype. Live up to the hype. And, once again, I don't care if this doesn't live up to the hype on February 1st. It, it definitely lived up to the hype. Um, and I bet you April 4th will live up to the hype. Um, yeah. Even if it doesn't, I don't care. This rivalry is back. This rivalry is heated. And this rivalry is awesome. Oh, it was, yeah, I mean, that building's never been so loud, and that's even with, as you mentioned, just an absolutely putrid performance by the home side for 40 minutes, and the place was still 
erupting. And when, it was hopping. It was awesome. Yeah, when the Flames were making that mini comeback where they pretended to care about the game for five minutes, um, the, the place really got into it again and then kind of deflated and then back into it. So, no, that was, that was the exact atmosphere that you wanted. And we're not at a point now where uh, these two teams would meet in the playoffs if they started today, but we've seen it's very much a possibility. So this is this going to be a fun stretch, and I'm imagining April 4th is going to have some pretty big implications. You hope so. You, you hope that that means something. Uh, it would be awesome if it does. Uh, we are underway on Pinder and Steinberg on this Monday afternoon, live from OPA Aviation, 465 Aviation Road, Northeast. Come on, get yourself some lunch here. If you're in the Northeast, it's easy to find. The Aviation Plaza is uh, one of the easiest landmarks in this area, McKnight Boulevard, uh, right on your way to the airport. We're here until 6 o'clock. We're hanging out with OPA and Kids Sport once again. This is for the Citywide 50-50. Stop in, get some lunch, and get yourself a $5 50-50 ticket or more. You could be winning up to $50,000. This is a celebration of Kids Sport's 25th anniversary in the city. We're trying to get as many tickets sold as we possibly can and uh, could win you a prize of up to $50,000. The draw is on March 6th. Uh, it's all in partnership with our good friends at Kids Sport and OPA of Greece, the power of good food believes in the power of community. Drop by and enjoy the flavors of Greece at one of their 32 Calgary locations today. We're here at OPA Aviation until 6 o'clock this afternoon. More Flames talk with Ryan Pike of Flames Nation coming up next. This is Pinder and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Pinder and Steinberg continues. Brought to you by Glenmore Audi on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Still trying to make sense of what we saw Saturday night at the Scotiabank Saddledome. 8-3 loss for the Flames to the Edmonton Oilers, including another melee, a line brawl, and a goalie fight. Welcome back. It's Pat Steinberg from OPA Aviation, and now our good buddy Ryan Pike from FlamesNation.ca, who joins us Mondays on the program. Mr. Pike, are you still buzzing from Saturday night as well? Yeah, it was. I'm still trying to, like, there's been... Goalie fights are, see, are so few and far between now that when you see a good goalie fight, you sort of it takes you a couple of days to sort of get over it, right? <laughs> the best, <laughs> and and it had been like uh, more than six years since we had seen our last goalie fight, and uh, it just happened to be the one that uh, broke through was one that was at the Scotiabank Saddledome. It was uh, it was certainly pretty cool to be a part of. Um, what what did you make overall of Saturday night, Calgary's effort, how it all came to be, and, and obviously what happened when the fireworks boiled over? Uh, I, I know, you know, I mentioned this on Twitter after the, the first period, but I think that whole game was sort of uh, the 2019-2020 Flames encapsulated in a single 60 minutes of hockey. Uh, on one hand, you know, you have some really smart play by Johnny Gaudreau and uh, – and Buddy Robinson on a, a nice goal. Uh, they had some other nice offensive plays. I know uh, Andrew Manjipani made a really nice uh, play to Matthew Kachuk on Kachuk's goal. I mean, the goals they scored, like the three goals they scored were clever, smart, good hockey plays. Uh, and they showed some flashes of brilliance in the offensive zone. Unfortunately, uh, you know, it was not a brilliant show in the defensive zone. At times, it resembled more of a horror show to the point where, you know, when we were talking to Jeff Ward after the game, I asked him rather succinctly, I'm like, do you feel like you guys did what you need to do to make life easy on your goaltender? And his answer was a very blunt, no, not at all. So I can't say I disagree with them. I, uh, defensively, they were really shoddy, and it really undid a lot of really good things they did in the offensive zone. 
Rivalry's back, though. That's got to be the best part about all this is that these two teams despise one another, and they play once more and maybe multiple times more this season. Yeah, and I think uh, Kyler Yamamoto, uh, who scored a really nice goal uh, in the first period, he had a, he had a good point uh, when he was talking to Scott Oak after the game. He, you know, he was asked what he learned about the the rivalry, and his 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 summation was pretty succinct: "We hate each other." And we haven't had that kind of level of venom in the rivalry for years because, to be honest, the rivalry didn't really matter that much in the standings or on the ice to either team. It was just sort of, you know, four to six games you had to get get through on your way to something different. Or, you know, half the time, let's be honest, with both these teams on the way to the golf course. Uh, so now the fact that, you know, we're going to come up to a game on April 4th at, uh, at the Saddle Dome that's probably going to determine either home ice in the playoffs or who gets in and who doesn't. or It's going to be a, a pretty, you know, a game of a good amount of magnitude for both sides. And I think that's going to make the rivalry so, even anyway. bigger. Oh, can, can, and, you know, we're all sort of, you know, I think we're all sort of joking about this after the game in the media lounge. Can you imagine seven games that are anything close to so. the level of intensity you've gotten for the last three? That would be fabulous. And I think the fans would love it. Yep. And I, I don't know if I'd be able to, to handle it from a person. It's all about me. I'm the only one that matters. Um, I don't know if I'd be able to handle it. So I don't think they should do it because I'm the only one that matters. It would be unbelievable, and, even, and, even if it would be an absolute circus. Yeah, we, we'll have a seven-game circus and then winner against Vancouver. That's, that also would be a bit of a circus. So uh, if everything goes well for those three Western Canadian teams, it'd be, it'd be really cool to sort of see, you know, the West well-represented in the Pacific Division playoffs because, you know, you and I both know, and, you know, you talk to Jonathan Davis about this uh, every week, uh, the, the Pacific Division has been dominated by the California teams for the better part of the last decade, and it, it seems like it's about to swing the other way. What's this rivalry like on the nation, Oilers Nation and Flames Nation? Uh, so far, so far, uh, fairly, uh, fairly uh, cordial. But we'll see uh, as the season bears on. I think it was, uh, you know, I think there was some tension when the Flames were up three zip in the in the season series. And I think the fact that you know you had a game like last, you know, Saturday night was sort of a, you know, a nice uh, way to let some tensions loose because, you know, you had a goalie fight, you had Kachuk fight, you had Buddy Robinson fight, you had, you know, uh, McDavid and Dreisaitl look like McDavid and Dreisaitl. And so now Oilers fans are probably thinking the Flames don't have their number completely, so they might have some daylight in the season series. Uh, and, and from a Flames perspective, you look at that and go, wow, that's at least they still got one three out of four, right? Yeah. With Ryan Pike from FlamesNation.ca joins us on Mondays. Let's get into, let's leave that game on Saturday, get into what else is relevant Flames-wise right now. And I think a lot of people are very interested in what this team ends up doing prior to the trade deadline a little bit later on this month. What's, what's, your, what's your feel on the trade deadline? What do the Flames need to do? What should the Flames do? How are you feeling about deadline 2020? I'm a bit worried because uh, I'm I'm worried that they might make a move to make a move rather than sort of make the right move. I mean, uh, Bradfield Living's been pretty good uh, since he became general manager at not making moves for the sake of making moves. I mean, even last year's move for you know Oscar Oscar Fantenberg for a conditional fourth did fit a, a need. I think the need that they have right now, it's pretty obvious, is a right shot forward to play in their top top six or maybe even top nine. Uh, I think you know getting another bonafide right wing would allow guys to slot a little bit better uh over at athletic uh this morning uh pierre lebrun posited uh he 
you know, wrote up a few you know, trades that he thinks would make sense for both sides. And I think the, the deal he put together was uh, a second round pick, uh, Adam Rzichka and a conditional fourth rounder, I believe, fourth or th- third or fourth rounder uh, for, uh, fourth for rounder. Tyler Toffoli. And that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think, you know, I don't think anyone really wants the Flames to, to blow their, their first rounder on a rental, and I don't think the Flames want to do that. Uh, they're fairly lean prospect-wise, and I think they want to keep building up. Uh, at the same time, you know, Adam Rzichka is a pretty good uh, guy who might be a bit lost in the shuffle in Stockton, and if you're someone like the LA Kings who have seen a lot of the Stockton Heat, you might see him and go, hmm, you know, he's got good size, he's a center, he's got some 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 upside to his game. That would be a terrible gamble, and I think the Flames have enough depth uh, in sort of the mid-level of their prospect base so they can afford to give that up, and you're only giving up a second. So I think that would, uh, that would I think, suit a lot of needs, but I'm just curious if they, if they try to do anything more than that, uh, you know, in terms of maybe trying to find a different mix for their, for their bottom six in terms of, you know, what do they do with Toby Reeder? What do they do with Mark Jankowski? Uh, it does, you know, I think it's a little bit telling that Austin Zarnick isn't here in, uh, and Buddy Robinson is. So maybe they're trying to build up uh, Austin Zarnick's value for a potential trade. Or, you know, let's be honest, he just got into Stockton. Maybe they want to let him uh, have a bit more time before the trade deadline to uh, get his legs under him. So, I think they need a right a right shot forward because right now they have a lot of guys playing their off wing and they and you know it's just in terms of their slotting I think they have a couple guys playing a bit over their skis and I think getting a bit of help for them would help things balance out a little bit better. I'm I'm not enamored with Toffoli. I'm really not. Um, I I worry about his foot speed. The production has dropped significantly. Granted, I know it's on a bad Los Angeles team that does not score very often, but. I'll be honest. I'm not. I'm not enamored with giving up those type of assets for Toffoli. If if I were making decisions, it just does not seem like a um, does not seem like the guy that's really going to make a significant impact and turn this team from being one of the most infuriatingly inconsistent groups in the NHL to now all of a sudden being where they want to be. Yes, he would get make them deeper. I'm not trying to say he wouldn't. I just I don't know. Like is is Toffoli the guy at the top of your list? I wouldn't think so, but honestly, I don't know if there is a magic bullet to the top of the list. Even, even like, even yeah. if they had gone out and gotten Taylor Hall with the the trade they had kicking around, and by the sound of it, they were really close on getting Taylor Hall. I don't think Taylor Hall would have been able to solve the inconsistency issues. And you know, in unless they can figure out what's in the water this year, that's just sort of making everyone play a little bit worse every other game. I don't know uh, if whatever they do will make a heck of a lot of difference. You know. I still wonder about giving Austin Zarnick a real shot. You talk about they need a right shot. He's a right shot. He was playing well before the injury. I just, before they go out and and make a deal for a rental or something like that, I feel like it makes sense to give Zarnick another run and see what you can get from him. Yeah, you've you've still got three weeks or so until the trade deadline. Why wouldn't you give Zarnick a run? Can they afford to, though? I mean... With with the the playoff picture so tight, I mean, as of this morning, I think they're in the last wild card spot and a point up on the teams chasing them. You know, I think that's the challenge because you know, there's a if if it's up to me, there's a lot of things expend uh, lineup experiment wise that we try out just to sort of get a sense of who can do what because this team could change a lot over the summer. Well, just the second power the expired. second power play unit's no good, 
and uh, he'd be a part like it's not as if you're trying out ryan pinder you're trying out a guy who is scored in on this team and and who has played in the league and and they went out and acquired when he was very coveted in free agency i, I don't think it's crazy to to think that they, they could put him in and like he's producing in stockton it's not like you're getting a ton of offense on this team right now he was playing well before the high ankle sprain they gave Buddy Robinson a run, and, and he's been fine. Like, what, why would they be hesitant to go down that road with Zarnik? I don't know. He's, he's producing in Stockton, but he's 28. I mean, I'd be worried if so he is, wasn't so producing in Stockton. Yeah, and, you know, like Buddy Robinson, I don't think he's been a magic bullet here either. I think, you know, it's the same kind of thing where they – I think it shows that they have a lot of decent depth options. I mean, Byron Fraze could be a decent depth option. Uh, you know, Justin Kirkland. Like, they have a lot of guys sort of in, that, in the mid-20s age range who aren't really – prospect prospects that could be pretty decent right. you know depth guys but at the same time like are you know are you gonna do they have the uh the ability to sort of say for example you swap out you know robinson for, for zarnik for a week would would that be appreciably better or be about the same i mean i don't know if you know putting anyone on the right side of uh Goudreau and monahan is going to fix what ha- isn't been working for them this year so right. it's it, it gives them a different look but i don't know if it solves anything Final thought, and that's on the blue line, and you unearthed some pretty interesting information. You know, we Pinder and I were talking last week about the the left-right split, and if this guy goes, what do you do? Oliver Shillington has struggled the last the last little while. Two of the last three games, he's really been rough. But you unearthed some pretty interesting information that as much as we view him as a left-shot defenseman right now, that's not necessarily the case, right? Yeah, I, I was working on a, a feature on Oliver that will be on the site tomorrow. And uh, at the end of the interview, you know, before we, we close up, I sort of just asked him generally about, you know, if he's played the offside. Because, you know, if you look at the, the Flames, the guys who are potentially leaving this summer are a right-side guy in C.J. Brody and a right-side guy in Travis Hamonick. And I brought up, I'm like, you know, have you ever played the right side? And up until, according to Oliver, up until he came over to North America as an 18-year-old, he was playing the right side. He played the right side fairly extensively in Sweden on his way up, and he only really moved to the left side in North America because, you know, the the general defensive tendencies that, that uh, coaches have, they prefer to have defensemen play on their strong side. So he got moved to left side because he's a left shot, but uh, he has a lot of experience, pro experience as a teenager playing on the on the right side as an offside winger offside uh, defenseman rather sort of tj brody style and he's apparently fairly comfortable doing it so uh you know i th- i know we we're all sort of looking at the the log jam on the left side uh, going forward with you know yusuf alamaki's lefty and you know noah hannafin signed for a while and he's a lefty and you know you only have on the right side uh, rasmus anderson signed long term but if you know if they have the patience to potentially try it out either you know at the end of the season or in camp next year you know, Oliver Shillington playing on the right side could be something that's you know, really helps out the depth and uh, solves a lot of problems for the Flames. Good stuff, Pike. We will talk to you again next Monday. Appreciate it. Good. Take care. It's Ryan Pike from FlamesNation.ca on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline, the same secret recipe since 1975. For pickup or delivery, call 403-248-3344 and find them at 6060 Memorial Drive Northeast. This is Pinder and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Time to turn up the heat. These are three burning questions on the Steinberg Show. Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Welcome back to OPA here and OPA Aviation. We're uh, OPA Aviation Road, 465 Aviation Road. Very easy to find. Peter Klein has got our three burning questions this afternoon. Mr. Klein, 
Question number one for you today, sir. Does Saturday's result change, like, big picture where you view either the Flames or the Oilers? Nope, not really. I mean, it was one game. Remember, the Flames pumped the Oilers at Rogers Place on December 27th. That was a night where the Oilers weren't very good and the Flames were pretty darn good. Vice versa. Flames were not very good on Saturday. The Oilers came to play. I've never seen Leon Dreisaitl look as possessed as he was in a game against the Flames. Dreisaitl was absolutely dominant. Um, I think any of the conversations about Dreisaitl can't drive his own line are no longer valid. That guy was absolutely dominant centering a line with Nugent Hopkins and Yamamoto and McDavid centers the other line. Like That was a really good performance from the Oilers. Mm-hmm. So, no, it doesn't change much at all for me because all along I felt like these two teams are closer than we gave them credit for being at the beginning of the season. The Oilers have definitely surprised most, and we all know the Flames have disappointed. There's not much separating these two teams right now. You know, we've got two blowout wins and two games that could have gone either way that just happened to be won by the Flames. You know, like, are the Flames a little deeper on paper? I guess you can make that argument, but they don't have they don't have Drysaddle and they don't have McDavid and guys that elite make an enormous difference. So, no, I, I still think these two teams are very close. I think it would be a long, hard-fought six-seven game playoff series if they met. So, no, uh, not not much changes at all for me in terms of how I view these groups. Now, in that game, uh, we saw both goalies uh, in varying degrees of, I guess, lack of success. Uh, which one would you go with Tuesday against the Sharks? Oh, boy. All the tough probably, questions. Probably Talbot. I hadn't even thought about that. Um, I would probably go Talbot mainly because I thought he was so good coming in in relief of Riddick. Like, had Talbot not been as dialed in as he was once Riddick was pulled... That game could have been 10-3 or 10-1 at the time. Like, he was so good. The Oilers were so, Like, the Flames got within 4-3 in the second period. They didn't deserve to be within a sniff of that game. That second period was so bad. The only reason Calgary was able to get within one was because of a couple of uh, iffy Mike Smith goals and Cam Talbot standing on his head. So, yeah, I think I'd probably go to Talbot. Last one for you with uh, the Super Bowl now in the books. One thing that uh, we can always be assured of is that the team that loses the Super Bowl has a bit of a down year the next year. So that being said, will the 49ers continue on uh, the, the long, proud tradition of being a Super Bowl losing team that becomes a bit of a one-hit wonder? I don't think so. You know, this group has got a really impressive defensive front i mean we talked all about going into this game you know there was a lot made of the five former first round picks on that d line and and how well look even though they lost the game they had patrick mahomes running for his life all game long it just so happens that mahomes is a man child and was able to he's he's half man half machine like he was able to push guys off of him and and you know be stronger than a lot of t- a lot of guys when they were close to pulling him down i don't think san fran is poised for a letdown at all i mean are they going to be the no questions asked dominant team in the nfc maybe not but that to me looks like 
a two-horse race in the NFC West once again between the Seahawks and the Niners. I think San Fran's a playoff team once again. I don't think defensively they go from being elite to also Rams. They're going to be an outstanding defense once again. I, I don't see them taking a big step back. What about you? I don't see them taking a big step back, but I, I thought the Rams were kind of the, the one that were one-hit wonder proof. And then, like 9-7 and seven isn't a bad year, but we can all agree that was not the Rams team we were expecting. And they had so much talent, it just felt like, well, there's no way they could possibly fall off. And then they kind of fell off. But no, I, I like a lot of the pieces San Francisco has. I really like the defense. I think Debo Samuel is only going to get better and better. <laughs> and I think... Um, I mean, he was on his way to being Super Bowl MVP if the 49ers win that game. And I think Kyle Shanahan is a tremendous coach, even though the last couple times in the Super Bowl haven't gone great. So, no, I, I think they will be okay. But I think that division is going to be really tough. You mentioned the Seahawks. I think the Rams are still going to be a tough out. And I don't think Arizona is going to be a bad team for that much longer with Kyler Murray taking a few more steps and the, the coach Bruce Arians having his hands on that offense for another year. So I, I think it's going to be a bit of a tougher road for them moving forward just because this is going to be one of the tighter divisions in football, I think. The only, um, the only worry I have about the 49ers is the same worry I have about the Rams, and, and that's the quarterback. And I Paying the quarterback a lot of money. What's that? Paying the quarterback a lot of money to be kind of average. Yeah, in both cases. Yeah. And, you know, Jim, I, Jimmy Garoppolo was having a very efficient first three quarters before he went into the tank. But I don't, I still don't know what Garoppolo is. I don't, I still can't be 100% or even close to 100% confident that Garoppolo is anything more than a pretty good game manager. And I've got those same worries of Jared Goff in L.A. So, you know, I, I think you don't have those worries with Seattle. You've got an MVP caliber quarterback with the Seahawks, and and you know, I'm I'm very curious to see what they do defensively, and and some of their personnel, and and some of their free agents they got to work with in Seattle. But that Niners defense, I still think is going to be one of the best in the NFL next year, and as such. I think they'll be a playoff team. I don't know if they're going to run away with things like they did this year, but I still think they're a playoff team next year. Yes, and uh, correction, I said Bruce Arians. He's in Tampa Bay, uh, formerly of the uh, the Arizona Cliff Cardinals. Kingsbury. Cliff, Cliff Kingsbury uh, with Arizona. But I still think Arizona's going to have quite a bit to say in that, uh, that NFC West. Um, Jimmy Garoppolo, if they were to cut him, would be $4.2 million in dead cap space. Um, if you Google Jimmy Garoppolo, the first thing that comes up is a video saying that they should drop or, uh, cut Garoppolo and sign Tom Brady. So that's where the internet is uh, at today on uh, Jimmy Garoppolo and the San Francisco 49ers. How would I do? Did I go three for three? Uh, we'll go two for three. I, I don't know if I'm all the way with you on the, the San Francisco one, but... Okay. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll go two for three. So a solid start to the week, but not not hey, perfect. That's uh, geez, I'd be I'd be first ballot Hall of Famer in baseball. I'd be the best. I'd be the best player at the plate ever of all time if I went two for three <laughs> for the rest. So I'm pretty okay with that. I'm very okay with that. Tune in Friday, Hockey Central at noon. Lose mailbag. Uh, get your 
questions in at sportsnet.ca slash 960. And if we read your question to Peter Labardius on Friday afternoon, you'll be winning a pair of lower bowl seats to an upcoming Flames game and a $100 gift card to Ruth's Chris. Lose Mailbags brought to you by Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. Making celebrations unforgettable is one of their many specialties. You bring the occasion, they'll bring the perfection. Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. So the Super Bowl was yesterday, but all anyone is buzzing about still in this city is what happened Saturday night at the Scotiabank Saddledome. Pinder joins the show next. We're focusing in on that, and we've got some great stuff from practice today to get to as well. Pinder and Steinberg rolls on live from OPA Aviation next. Sportsnet 960, the fan.